be seated. The Bible says that the things that happened in the Old Testament and the things that happened to Israel that we have record of happened as types or in samples to us. One of the things that the Bible speaks of that Jesus identified with more specifically and, and uh, more explicitly than any other thing is the Passover. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that Christ is our Passover, sacrifice for us. But then you also remember at the Last Supper, Jesus shared with his disciples, and he said some amazing things, things that they didn't understand entirely at the time, I don't believe. But he talked about the bread and the wine being his body and his blood. Well, you can't get any more identification than Jesus saying this, these elements of the Passover pertain to me. But I want to start this morning in Exodus chapter 12 where we see the institution of the Passover. Beginning in verse 1, it said, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. God changes their calendar. This is so important that he changes their calendar. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Now before we go further, I want you to notice something. And, and really I hope it, it becomes apparent to you throughout this chapter. There's more emphasis on the lamb that is eaten than there is even on, in the blood. That doesn't mean it's more important. But I think a lot of times the, the modern day church... And I hope you and I aren't guilty of this. But I think a lot of times the, the modern day church looks at the communion elements. And they recognize that the blood of Jesus paid a, a great price. Or was a great price to be paid for the forgiveness of sins for our redemption. But what about the bread? The Passover was instituted by God in a very specific manner. So that every bit of the lamb would be eaten. He'll say further on anything that, you, that is left over that you don't eat. Is to be burned with fire. But the emphasis is just as much if not more. On the lamb than it is the blood. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Specific point in time that everybody is supposed to offer their sacrifice. And they shall take up the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread. And with bitter herbs shall they eat it. Eat not of it raw nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs and with the puritans thereof. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that remaineth of it, which remaineth of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. And thus shall you eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now what does that signify? Well, it signifies that this is for your departure from sin. This is for your Christian walk. Be ready to go because of the things that Jesus will fulfill. Verse 12, for, this, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. I want you to notice that word plague. It doesn't mean sickness. 
when Moses relays these things, this is, remember this is God telling Moses what to tell the people. And then when Moses tells the people, he uses the word destroyer. Instead of the plague, the destroyer will pass over us, over them. And this day shall be unto you a for a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast unto the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day shall you put away leaven out of your houses. For whoso eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, <clears throat> that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be a holy convocation. That just mean a, means an assembly kicks off the Passover uh, week. And in the seventh day there shall be another holy convocation to you. <clears throat> no manner of work shall be done in them except that which every man must eat. That only may be done of you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall you observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. Can I ask you a question, folks? Do slaves have armies? Now we know they develop armies in the wilderness when they have battles to fight and so forth. But this is a, a, a group of several million slaves. They don't have armies. This word armies is just talking about a mass of people. It's talking about the number of them all. Verse 18, in the first month on the 14th day of the month at even, you shall eat unleavened bread until the one and 20th day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whosoever eateth that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. And, of course, you know that leaven represents sin. It's talking about the action of removing leaven, a type of sin, from their houses, just as we should remove sin from our lives. You shall eat nothing unleavened, and all your habitations shall you eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. Verse 23 is the one that I um, uh, mentioned before. It says, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come unto you. Now why is the destroyer at work here? Well, quite simply, because the Egyptians are idol worshipers. This is judgment against the gods of Egypt. And we've uh, we taught this, it's been a long time ago, but we taught about the, uh, uh, the ten plagues. Well, really it's nine plagues uh, and the, uh, the death of the firstborn. But in each of those things that God did unto Pharaoh and, and the, the things that came upon the Egyptian people, each one of those was a display of God's power that was greater than their, than their idols. They worshiped the Nile River. They believed there was a spirit in the Nile River. And so they would worship this guy. So God attacks the Nile River, turns it into blood. Same thing is true with the frogs and the locusts and the, and the lice and uh, uh, all the other things that were included in there as well. But the destroyer was a, uh, a different thing. The death of the firstborn. And it was, the Bible describes it as a horrible cry that went out throughout all the land of Egypt. The destroyer was somebody that just, uh, an angel of God, literally the angel of death, I guess. That just took the lives of those people instantly that had rebelled against God and, and refused to serve him. Verse 25, it shall come to pass when you become to the land which the Lord will give you according as he has promised that you shall keep this service. And it talks about teaching the, the children I'm going to skip down to verse 29. It came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where there was not one dead. And Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron by night 
and said, Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. He's asking Moses to give a blessing to him after he's been the one that caused all the problems for the people over these several months during the plagues. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they, say, they said, we be all dead men. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses. And they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. The word borrowed here is, is really a poor word. It means they demanded of them. They're demanding payment for the time that they spent in slavery. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they lent unto them such things as they required and they spoiled the Egyptians. Now, folks, this was prophesied. God told Moses this when he talked to him in the burn, uh, at the burning bush, the, the, um, uh, the experience he had at the burning bush. Let me read to you from Exodus chapter 3. Um, well, I'm, uh, this is, like I said, this is God talking to Moses out of the burning bush. I'm just going to pick up the story in verse, th uh, verse 19, Exodus 3:19. God said, and I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite the Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall come to pass that when you go, you shall not go out empty. But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and of her that sojourneth in her house jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment, and you shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and you shall spoil the Egyptians. So I want you to see that this is something that God had, had talked to Moses about prior to him even going back to Egypt and, and approaching Pharaoh. I want you now to turn with me to Psalm 105. There's one verse of scripture here that I'm sure you'll be familiar with. I'm going to start reading in verse 26. He sent Moses his servant. This, by the way, this psalm is a psalm of praise because of what God did and how he brought them out of the land of Egypt. He sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. They showed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark. And they rebelled not against his word. He turned their waters into blood and slew their fish. Their land brought forth frogs in abundance in the chambers of their kings. He spake and there came divers sort of flies and lice in all their coasts. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He smote their vines also and their fig trees and brake the trees of their coasts. He spake and the locusts came and caterpillars and that without number. And did eat up all, uh, and the locusts and the caterpillars uh, did eat up all the herbs in their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. He smote also all the firstborn in their land, the chief of all their strength. He brought them forth also with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble person among them. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them fell upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering. And fire to give light in the night. The people asked and he brought quails and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock and the waters gushed out and they ran in dry places like a river. Now you can see that he's going further. This psalm of praise goes further than just the Passover and just the, the exodus from Egypt. It starts talking about some things that, he did, that uh, God did for them when they were on their journey in the wilderness. What I want you to see, folks, is that God planned very specifically, planned and told them. If we went earlier in the, the third chapter of Exodus, we'd find where he talks about the promised land being a land where the Canaanites lived and the Hittites and the Amorites and those people that frightened the children of Israel, at least ten of the spies, when they came to the edge of the promised land. But all these things were part of what God had in mind. The things, that Egypt, or the things that Israel looked at as being problems 
reasons why they couldn't take everything that God said. God knew about those things ahead of time. He had spoken to them about these things ahead of time. This was just a matter of those 10 of the 12 spies, those 10 spies just being afraid because they didn't focus on what God had said. God had done everything for them that he said that he would do and always does. He always comes through. He's always faithful to honor his word. No matter what it looks like, God's word is greater. No matter how close you get to the end, God's word is always true. No matter what it looks like, no matter how we feel about what it looks like, God's word is always true. So he brought them, again, verse 37, he brought them out with silver and gold, and there was not one people among their tribes. I want you to understand something, folks. God wants us to spoil our enemies. The Bible says the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. God did not make this earth and fill it with goodness and riches and so forth to watch the devil and his crowd running into the ground. It's here for you and me. The silver and gold is the Lord's, he said. The cattle on a thousand hills belong to him. Who did he make that stuff for? Certainly not the devil and his crowd. So the things I want you to see, specifically when Moses was given direction by God, is this lamb, the two parts of the lamb, the first is the, uh, uh, the blood on the doorpost. But then the second was the eating of the flesh. Now remember in John chapter 6, Jesus got himself into a lot of trouble by telling him about these things. He came to a place where there had been a great miracle the feeding of the 5,000, the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. And because of that miracle, the Bible says that a lot of people believed on him that he was the Christ. But then the next day they came back, and Jesus upbraids them a little bit. It's part of the same crowd on the other side of the Sea of Galilee now. They followed him over there. And Jesus says, you didn't come because of the miracles. You came because you wanted another lunch. And they start talking to him about fulfillment of things. They talk to him about the manna that was given in the wilderness. And Jesus said, I'm the bread of life that lasts forever. Manna only lasted for one day. And then he expands on that a little bit. And he said, except you eat my blood and drink, or eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. Well, the Jews know that drinking blood is the ultimate no-no. It would be the ultimate sin. And so they get offended at the things that he said. So much so that it says from that time forward many of his disciples walked with him no more. Jesus turns to the twelve and says, Are you guys going to leave too? And they said, where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. They recognize the importance of the things that Jesus said. You know, it's an amazing thing how people will allow themselves to get offended. It's an amazing thing, even greater amazement to me, how people will let the word offend them. Now, the disciples didn't know any more than the people that left. In John chapter 6, I'm talking about. From the time, and from that time forward, again, the scripture says that many left Jesus, departed from him. The disciples didn't understand the hardness of the saying any more than the other people did. They didn't stay because they understood what Jesus was saying. They saw the same prob problem, what could be interpreted as a conflict, with the eating of the bread and drinking of the, uh, the, the cup or the wine, which represents his blood. They didn't have any greater answer than anybody else did. But they, in this case, they refused to allow themselves to get offended. They took the attitude, I guess, that we don't know what Jesus is talking about here, but look at the stuff that he does and look at the words that he speaks. 
We're going to hang in there. The devil will try to use things that you don't know or things that you don't like about what you see and rob you of the blessings that God has provided for you. One of the things Jesus said when he was questioned about why he's doing these things and how he was able to manifest the power of God to such a great degree. One of the things he answered was, Blessed are they that are not offended in me. Blessed are they that are not offended in me. Well, here we see Jesus identifying himself again with the tremendous ritual, memorial of the Passover. Now, what happened? I want you to realize that through the Passover, there were several things that were done. And I think it's important for us to focus on these. The one thing that was done, or the first thing that we'll mention, is that when the blood was applied, which again is a type of the blood of Jesus, the destroyer passed over that household. So we can't overemphasize the, the importance of the blood. Because if they had done everything else and not put the blood on the doorpost, they would have died. So we have to emphasize that first and foremost. And Jesus, through the shedding of his blood, fulfilled God's plan of redemption for you and me. We wind up being new creatures in Christ Jesus. A brand new species of being, it reads in another translation. But then the next thing that the Bible tells us about and goes into some detail about was eating the lamb for the strength of their journey. For their walk outside or out of that which represents sin and death. And then the third thing is that God intended for them, and that was fulfilled. He intended for them to come out of Egypt by spoiling the wealth of their enemies. Psalm 105 verse 37 again that we read just a moment ago. He brought them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble among them. Now, folks, I know I say this a lot. I'm going to keep saying it a lot. So if this offends you, start working on being offended right here. You can't have a group of several million people. And again, the estimates range from two to seven million. I don't know how they got the two million. I know at one time, in one scripture here, it says that there were 600,000 men and so maybe that translates with women and children and the mixed multitude. The Bible says a lot of Egypt came out with them in what's called the mixed multitude. I don't know how they estimated or come up with their estimates. But let's just say it's two million people. How do you get two million people that have been slaves all their lives and not have any sick people among them? In fact, this word feeble in Psalm 105 verse 37 there was not one feeble among them. It means to totter, to waver, as in losing your balance and stumbling and falling. So the Bible is not only saying that there was not one sick person among them. It says there's not one person that through age or anything else lacks strength to make it for the whole journey. How is that possible with two million slaves? Exodus chapter 15, which is very soon after the events that took place when Israel came out of Egypt. They come to a place where there's water, but it's bitter. Now, we don't know, and commentators are, are in dispute whether or not that means it was just a, a bad taste like sulfur or something like that, or if it was poisonous. But God shows Moses a tree. And he cuts down the tree and throws the tree into the lake or the waters, whatever it was. And it said that they were pured or purified so that the people could drink. And God establishes an ordinance. And he says, if they will diligently hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to keep and do all his commandments. Moses hadn't gotten the commandments yet, folks. 
So he's not talking about just something that was specific for their point in time. But he said, if you keep all the commandments of the Lord and obey his voice, he said, I will put none of the uh, diseases of Egypt upon you. Again, that's not a causative thing. That verb is a permissive verb. So really he's saying, I will not allow any of the diseases of Egypt upon you. For I am the Lord that healeth thee. I am the Lord that healeth thee. Well, folks, if we just go by the things that we've said so far, he hadn't healed anybody. He purified water, but that's not healing. Who is he talking about, or what is he talking about when he said, I am the Lord that healeth thee? Well, the word healeth is a continuous action verb. It means past, present, and future. So we could say, and I think a lot of people do, we could say, well, God's making a promise that just like he purified the waters, he'll heal the people of sickness and disease from this time forward. Well, if that was the case, he'd have used a different verb. He wouldn't have used one that was continuous action. He wouldn't use one that meant past, present, and future. So for this verb to qualify as being used correctly, it has to include some kind of healing work or healing experience that's already taken place. What could that be? Look with me to Second Chronicles chapter 30. Second Chronicles chapter 30, fast forward 765 years. Hezekiah has just become king. So you can see all the things that, that, have, um, that are part of the gap in the time period. Saul was king, David was king, Solomon was king. The kingdom was divided. All those things have taken place. And the children of Israel have gotten away from the keeping of the Passover. Well, when Hezekiah becomes king, he gets one of the scribes or one of the high priests, one of the priesthood at least. He gets them to come and read the word to him. Read the things that are recorded as written by Moses the first five books of the Bible. And he sees in there, or hears it read, about the Passover. And it's not been kept for hundreds of years. Hezekiah was never, in his lifetime, the Passover was never kept until he reinstituted it. And so when he finds these things out, he recognizes that those are things that still are in effect as far as God is concerned, even though Israel isn't partaking of them or keeping them. I'm going to start reading in verse 17, 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 17. It says, For there were many in that congregation that were not sanctified. Therefore the Levites had the charge of the killing of the Passovers for everyone that was not clean to sanctify them under the Lord. The story on this, folks, is that when Hezekiah finds out about the Passover and understands that we haven't been keeping this according to God's command, he pulls the trigger in a hurry. He says, we want to keep this next Passover. It's coming up soon. We're going to start keeping the Passover again. But because the people didn't know anything about it, there was nobody that had experienced or kept the Passover during their lifetimes. He's dealing with a whole different group of people. He's dealing with a group of people that don't even know, and for the most part, people outside the priesthood wouldn't even know that they haven't kept a Passover. They wouldn't even know what a Passover is to a great degree. So Hezekiah says, well, instead of waiting another year to do it right, let's go ahead and pull the trigger on this now. And as a result, there were a lot of people that through ignorance, lack of experience, or whatever, didn't know how to present themselves in a clean and holy manner to be uh, able to partake of these things. Verse 18, for a multitude of the people, even many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet did they eat the Passover otherwise then it was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, The good Lord pardon every one that prepareth his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he not be cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. What he's saying is, Hezekiah's looking to God saying, Look, we're trying to do the right thing here. We're trying to reinstitute the memorial that you instructed for us to have. But we don't have time to prepare for this in the right way. And people don't even know what the preparation is. 
they're not back on board yet with this Passover uh, idea or ritual. So Hezekiah simply prays for God to pardon them. Forgive all the stuff that we're doing wrong about this, Lord, because our attitude is right towards you. Verse 20. And the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. This word healed is never used for anything other than physical, uh, the healing from physical sickness. He didn't use a word that was spiritualized. We have a record, a true and accurate record of one of the things that happened during the Passover or because of the Passover, and that was the healing from physical sickness and disease. Well, if that happened in this Passover, 765 years before the original one, and we know that God says, I am the God that healeth thee, and the wording that's used has to mean some kind of past event as well as the present, the future things to come. Can we not draw a conclusion that the Passover was part, a part of the Passover was for the healing of the body? It sure happened in Hezekiah's day. Why would God show Hezekiah and the children of Israel that made up the congregation at that time? Why would he show them greater power about the, the Passover than the people he gives it to to originate it? But if, since we see that the Passover is connected with healing, and it's unequivocal that the Bible says that it is, since we see that and understand that, is it too big a jump for us to recognize that through the eating of the Passover lamb, healing was restored to the people so that they could come forth with silver and gold and not one people among them? Well, that might be a big jump. What about the New Testament? Do we have any New Testament examples? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to start in verse 23. And there's some correction involved in this letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians. So keep that in mind. Verse 23, for I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh dam damnation, literally condemnation, to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Many other translations translate this, many are weak and sickly among you and have died prematurely. There's a, a couple of translations that I've found that identify that quite a few people have died. For this cause. Not discerning the Lord's body. Now what did Jesus say? Jesus said the bread was his body. Notice it does not say. Not discerning the Lord's blood. It doesn't say that they've got a wrong attitude. That's what unworthily is by the way. It's not unworthy. They were made worthy by the blood of Jesus. When they were born again. But it's their attitude toward the Lord's supper. That's causing them the problem. It's their attitude. The unworthy manner in which they esteem and therefore partake of the Lord's Supper. That's the thing that's caused sickness, has opened the door to sickness in the congregation or in the church, and has brought about premature death. Folks, can I ask you something? What is the resurrection about? The Bible says we'll be resurrected. There will be a day when we'll be resurrected. What will change? 
There's only one thing that will change, and that's your body. Let me show you a couple of scriptures. First in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 13. Paul is saying a lot of things about God and the people too. But he says, in whom you also trusted, talking about trusting in Jesus. After that you heard the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation. In whom also after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. When he says we were sealed by the Holy Spirit, but still there's something left to go. Does the Bible tell us that when Jesus comes back for the church, we'll change spiritually? No, in fact, the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first. And they'll be reunited with their bodies because they're in the presence of God now. So what changes? What is the resurrection all about? Folks, the resurrection is the changing of the body. Look with me to, uh, to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 18. He said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature, this is the word creation, he's talking about the earth. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestations of the sons of God. For the creature, the creation, the earth again, was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who had subjected the same in hope. In other words, he's saying the world didn't want to go into sin. The world didn't want to, it wasn't intended for and didn't, wasn't made to be subject to the spiritual death and sin that Adam's transgression brought upon the, all of mankind. He's saying the earth is waiting for things to change too. Folks, without making a political commentary, everybody concerned about global warming and climate change and all that stuff. A lot of it's just end time stuff. And the idea that if we could spend enough, enough trillions of dollars to make changes in our lifestyle, that that's going to change the earth for the better, they're out of their minds. And they're just after they're part of the trillions and trillions of dollars. The earth is groaning. The earth is subject to a spiritual law, the law of sin and death. And God didn't create this world to be governed by sin and death. For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption under the glorious liberty of the children of God. Remember, Revelation says right at the end of the tribulation period, God makes a new heaven and a new earth, and it comes down, to the, uh, comes down from heaven to the earth. That's what this is talking about. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain until, together until now, and not only they, not only the earth, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. What's the first fruits of our redemption? First fruits indicate something more is coming. First fruits indicates is an indication that there are later fruits. Why would he say first fruits if everything's already been done? But notice he says we've received the first fruits of the Spirit. What are the first fruits of the Spirit? Folks, the born again experience is the first fruit of the Spirit. We don't improve spiritually. We're not changed spiritually when Jesus comes back. There's nothing that the Bible says about our spirits that change or is altered by Jesus' return in one simple thing. Not one thing changes spiritually. Paul said when he fell into the trance, he said, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. Such a one was caught up into heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. How could he not know? 
If the work hadn't already been done, the spiritual part of the work hadn't already been done. If we were not already as endued with the eternal life now as we will be in heaven, then how could Paul not know? How could he not know? He's standing before Jesus and he is obviously not conscious of anything being different. He is the same person when he has the vision as he was before the vision occurred. What changes? The only thing that changes when Jesus comes back is that we receive our glorified bodies. So what is the resurrection? The resurrection is when our spirits, us, the real us, not half us, not deficient us, but the real us is either reunited with bodies that have died before or as the Bible says, we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye and we'll receive our redeemed bodies. If healing is not for us, how could there be a resurrection of the body? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, around verse 13, I think it is, says that we've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your spirit and in your bodies, which were both purchased by his blood. There can't be a resurrection if God's not concerned about the body. Or maybe a better way to say it is, why would we need a resurrection if he's not concerned about our body? Now, with that in mind, I want you to go back to something we already looked at in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Again, I'm going to start in verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Folks, if it was the blood of Jesus that saved us, then why do we need to remember his body? If the blood of Jesus is all there is, why don't we just drink the cup and leave the bread alone? Why is the bread even included? Now, folks, Jesus knows. The disciples didn't, but Paul, Paul looking back, certainly implies in this passage the reality that it has something to do with healing for the physical body if he didn't know that there would be no way for him to conclude that the church at Corinth was experiencing sickness and people were dying before the end of their time he knew this the early church knew this the early church understood this so if eating and drinking the elements of the Lord's Supper in the first generation of the church eating in an unworthy manner with the wrong attitude opened the door to sickness and death then shouldn't we conclude that eating it with the right attitude will bring healing and long life to us so he said take eat this is my body which is broken for you. Jesus knew what was going to happen to his body. Jesus knew the awful beating that he would take in Pilate's court. He knew the suffering that was necessary to fulfill the promise. You remember Isaiah 53, 5. Well, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs, sicknesses, and carried our pains. But we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. That word peace is also translated prosperity in many cases in the Old Testament. In other words, the, uh, again, we're coming back to the same point. The Passover, which was fulfilled by Jesus, didn't just include spiritual blessing. It included a financial blessing. It included a promise that God would meet all of our needs a promise of success 
The New Testament even goes further and calls us rich. It says that Jesus, through his sacrifice, made us rich. Now, no point in us getting in an argument about what rich means. Rich is a relative term. I remember as a kid, nobody had swimming pools. Part of the reason was because nobody had any money. The other part was because it was Birmingham, Alabama. And I thought anybody that had a, a cement pond. <laughs> I thought anybody that had an in-ground swimming pool was rich. Well, my idea of rich has changed a little bit over the years. I have a pool, but I'm not quite satisfied with that being the total amount of it. But folks, just like with the Passover, how the people came forth with silver and gold, Jesus paid a price for your well-being. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we were healed. With his stripes, we were healed. That's what Jesus says, take and eat. He says, take it. Remember, he's already had the big crowd that left him by explaining that it's necessary to eat his flesh and drink his blood. What does that mean? That means partake of the healing power of God that came about because of Jesus' sacrifice. And with his stripes, we are healed. We already see that the Passover is associated with healing. It's obviously associated with it in Hezekiah's day. We can see it through the language. If the language means anything, then Israel received the healing power of God, experienced the healing power of God to create a situation where these several millions of people didn't have anybody that was sick, much less sick, not even feeble. So anybody that had been sick had to have been healed. There couldn't have been just one person that was weak. Certainly not one person that was sick. And the scripture to be true, there was not one feeble among them. There was mass healings that took place as a result of the keeping of the Passover. Jesus went on to say, or Paul went on to say, after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Why do we want to show the Lord's death? Now the Passover was at a set time from the beginning when it was instituted all the way up until today. But when it comes to the Lord's Supper, there's no instruction given to the church about how often we should partake of it. There's no instruction given to the church or warning given to the church if you don't do it enough or if you do it too much. Paul just simply says that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we show the Lord's death. We do show the Lord's death until he comes. Why do we want to show the Lord's death? Because it was a great price that was paid. Remember, Jesus pulled back in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, with God, all things are possible. It was possible for Jesus not to go to the cross. That's why the angel came and strengthened him, I believe. He's sweating great drops of blood. The agony and the anguish that he's experiencing is all but beyond human comprehension. But he knows it's the only way to redemption. He knows it's the only way to bring the family of God, you and me, to the Father. So what's the significance of showing the Lord's death? Well, again, Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The difference between those two is one is the original sin, Adam's sin, that is forgiven us. And the other is individual sins that we commit. So he says he was wounded for our transgressions. 
bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Do you realize, folks, that we can say with absolute, without equivocation, with absolute confidence, that eating this bread and drinking this cup will not only restore your, restore your body to physical health, divine health, but will also bring a financial blessing into your life? If we have the right attitude, if we approach it in a worthy manner, now what would the unworthiness be for the church at Corinth? Well, we've already seen from other scriptures in the letters that Paul wrote to them. This is kind of a do-anything-you-want kind of group. And he chastises them for keeping the Passover and treating it like it's a, a, a church feast day. He upbraids them because they're not concerned about everybody partaking and having an equal share or having some kind of share. There are people that are getting drunk on the wine and others that don't receive anything. And so when he talks to this group at Corinth, they've got gifts of the Spirit in operation. Paul said they come behind in no good gift. So they've got a manifestation of the Holy Ghost. But when Paul talks about not discerning the Lord's body, what else can he be talking about? There's only two bodies of Christ. One is the church and one was Jesus' physical body. So if they're not discerning the body of the Lord, that would certainly be fulfilled by the fact that they're not walking in love toward each other. But perhaps even more than that, they're not recognizing that Jesus took stripes upon his back to facilitate, to obtain divine health for the physical body. In other words, they're not believing for anything. The simplest way to say it is, they may recognize the blood of Jesus makes us whole, but they're not counting anything else to be done, any other work to be accomplished through the Lord's Supper. Well, if they don't and they've gotten themselves into a, a problem with sickness and disease and if they've gotten themselves in a, into a problem through a wrong attitude so much so that people in their church have died prematurely wouldn't we expect that if we came with the right attitude to provide the benefits of healing for the physical body and financial blessing as well See, folks, if we recognize that Jesus died for those things, if we accept the truth of the word and believe that Jesus died for those things specifically, that's the kind of attitude that will bring healing power of God under, uh, to bear on our bodies. That's the kind of attitude that will bring financial success and provision and resources into our hands when Jesus said take eat this is my body or when he broke the bread and said this is my body take and eat he knows what he's going to have to pay the price for he knows how awful the price is going to be to obtain redemption for us he knows the suffering that's ahead for him he didn't go into these things with his eyes closed he knew exactly what was coming he knew exactly what was required for redemption to be obtained. He knew. In one of the Gospels, it says that Jesus, when he first sat down with the disciples at the Last Supper, Jesus said, with longing I have waited to eat this Passover with you. How come? Because he wanted to reveal to them what his death would fulfill. He wanted to reveal to them what his body being broken would provide. He wanted to reveal to them what his blood being shed would result in in the disciples' spirits and in their lives and even in their finances. 
People sometimes think it's a blasphemous thing to talk about wealth and resources in connection with the shedding of Jesus' blood. But folks, if the Bible is true, it's part of what he died for. It's not the only thing. Thank God that's not the only thing he died for. But to fail to partake of that must be a frustrating thing for the Lord. Think about how many people in the church really understand and really put their faith on what these elements represent. And here's God in heaven, Jesus himself, sitting at the right hand of God saying, I'm glad you got it right on the blood part, but I paid for other stuff too. Thank God we have the word. Amen. Gentlemen, would you come forward, please? We want to wait upon the people. Folks, I'm told that the kids are coming in to have communion with us as well. So keep that in mind when you're taking yours. Take enough for your kids too. A lamb for a house.
Paul said that when we came before the Lord's Supper, we should judge ourselves, examine ourselves and judge ourselves that we be not judged. Certainly we want to judge ourselves concerning sin in our lives, what we've allowed to, to linger. But I think we should examine ourselves also in that are we accepting? Do we believe for are we active in our faith to take hold of everything Jesus purchased? We see from Scripture that it includes not only forgiveness of sins, but healing for the physical body and the blessing of wealth. Father, we thank you for this body that Jesus said to take and eat. We thank you that his body was broken for us. And in it we receive healing for our bodies. Every sickness and every disease must leave. Every trace of every symptom must go. And Lord, we thank you that the chastisement, the punishment of our peace was upon you as well. We thank you for the sacrifice you made for us, Lord. Blessed Jesus. Blessed Holy Jesus. Lord, we declare that by the partaking of this bread, we access your healing power. We call ourselves well. In Jesus' name. Let's receive the bread. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, we do remember you. We remember the struggle that you experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. We remember the beating you took for us to purchase healing for our physical bodies. We remember the punishment that was laid upon you. We remember the shedding of your precious blood. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us enough to perform all the work of redemption. We declare that as we receive this cup, we have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. We have been healed by his stripes. And we have been made rich. Let's receive the cup. Amen. Let's all stand together. Before we go, let's lift our hands and just thank God for his goodness. We bless you, Father. We worship you. We magnify your holy name. Blessed be the blood of Jesus. Blessed is the sacrifice that he made for us. We love you, Father. We exalt you, Jesus. As King of kings and Lord of lords. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Bless you, Lord Jesus.
Hallelujah. We thank you, Father, that healing flows like a river. Your healing power flows through our church like a river. We thank you, Lord, that not one feeble is among us. We thank you, Lord, that we will spoil the earth just like Israel spoiled the Egyptians. We declare that things have been made right. And through Jesus, every person returns to his possessions, even as the year of Jubilee. We love you, Father. And we thank you for your goodness. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Folks, keep your faith active. Brother Hagin used to say it this way, keep the switch of faith turned on. Believe for these things and walk in them. Amen? Amen. Folks, have a great day. Come back and be with us tonight for Healing School if you can. Oh, don't forget Food Court Sunday.